Okay, hi everyone. How's it going? Great. It's going pretty, pretty good. Okay, so welcome to Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that tries to look at books academically. The book still being The One About the Forge by William White. It has been several months, and I think this intro has gotten really, really, has gotten really tiresome over time. And people, uh, avid listeners, the few that we do have, would have noticed it's been a while since we last dropped a podcast because we've been busy with quite a few things in the meantime. So Jared and Fiona, what have you been doing since our last podcast? Well, I've been just catching up furiously on editing work. I've been absolutely neck deep in other people's manuscripts for like two months, and I've just just been able to come up for air, so I'm absolutely stoked on that. Fiona, how about uh, you? What's been up? I, I live a very similar life to Jared. <laughs> like I've been That's true. freelancing a lot. Uh, I. I've also been doing purchasing stuff, and I've been stress avoiding finishing my own Kickstarter project, which I need to do a couple of small things and then go back to arguing with printers. So, oh, oh dear. which is really stressful. I On don't. On my end, I have been trying to. <laughs> no, sorry. Oh my God. Uh, Please edit out all Jonah, of the things. I will, said. I will share with you my horror. I will I will I will share with you my horrible printer story from my last Kickstarter. Basically, they ran away with my money and closed shop. Uh, anyway, um, but yeah, like uh, the other thing is on my end, I have been drowning in a sea of work as well as seeing things that I need to finish other projects literally break down. So. So it's like, uh, I'm supposed to illustrate the book, and I have not had any time to illustrate anything, largely because the tablet on which I illustrate things has since been cracked. So I have to, like, find money to replace that. But anyway, it's been bad. It's been bad. Okay. Um, All right. So here we go. Welcome to Trying to Be Kind. And as always, we begin this podcast with are like you know our introductions and what was our question today fiona uh what has your quarantine depression album been that's what has been your quarantine depression album been and i literally have it opened right now on a tab on spotify (laughs) that's how you know it's real (laughs) that's how you know it's real it's on spotify friends okay so who'd like to answer first uh I, i can go so um i no one's surprised. It's it's The Nightfly by Donald Fagan. It's like just, yeah, Jared listens to a lot of Steely Dan and also their various solo projects. So there you go. The Nightfly, <laughs> Donald Fagan. If you don't know it, you should. Go test your hi-fi set. Fiona, how about you? Uh, I've, like, uh, I, I'm bad at remembering album names, um, but uh, the artist Rame, I've been listening to quarter turns over the living line i think a lot like i have really boring musical tastes um i like bleep bloop music that's very bleak and quiet so um it goes well with depression but like i don't i don't have good album recommendations for people like the most exciting thing i like listening to for the most part is depeche mode i'm aware of pop music like i've heard a hundred gags Oh my goodness. 
Oh my goodness. Once again, the, these two prove that they're cooler than me. <laughs> I, was I like, also listen to like nightcore remixes of Frozen. Of gum pop. <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening I... to like, oh, okay. Like, I've been listening to angry girl music half the time. Like, Ooh. there's a lot of Tori Amos in my playlist. You can't go wrong with Tori. Yeah, and then I go for like plaintive Why Don't You Love Me songs. So. <laughs> So, quite a bit of Robin and quite a bit of Lisa Loeb. Um, wow, yeah, very, so like, um, very of a time. Like there's a there's a slice of time that you kind of live in there, huh? Yeah, I think I think I combat depression by re-entering the '90s, which is a depressing <laughs> thought in and of itself. <laughs> All right, so the book once more. Gosh, this book never going to end is it it's just never going to no end. this is this we're is the second done. to last episode we're, we're gonna do the rest of this chapter okay here we go so the book tabletop rpg design in theory and practice at the forge from 2001 through 2012 designs and discussions by william j white as published by palgrave mcmillian in our last episode we were looking at a chapter which talked all about Forge theory from GNS to the big model. And we had ended by talking rather insouciantly about this beautiful chart, which described the big model. Yeah, I um, do and, love it. And Jared, you were saying we might have been unfair to the chart. Well, just that we didn't give it very much time. I think we need to like, basically what's next is going through it sort of piece by piece, you know, and talking about like what the bits of it are sort of unpacking it because this is this is the big model by at least the way this book presents it the the diagram is the big model so i think we need to sort of at least sketch it out uh, yeah. as best we can yeah okay so before we continue with that though my big question would be do you still see people deliberately referring to this design theory or design model in creating their games like that's my question like you know how some people <clears throat> Sorry, you, you know how some people would uh, adhere to a theory, and then they would use that theory to shape their praxis. Do you still see anyone like actively shaping their praxis by saying, "Hmm, so do I have a way of looking at the social contract behind this game and establishing it? Do I have technique A, B, C, D? Do Do you know of anyone who does that, or is this largely something that has become like?" Uh, your practices have been influenced without you knowing it. In my mind, and like my view of the, which granted is a limited and skewed view of the <clears throat> design landscape in games, it's, there, I don't think there's, it certainly doesn't exist in in whole. You know what I mean? Like there's not people out there doing the big model all the time um, that I know of anyway. But I do think there are bits of it, specifically GNS, that get that come up quite a lot, um, sort of separate the big model as a way of talking about things. Um, there's and then there's a lot of assumptions that sort of quietly, as you were saying, sort of influence people's designs. A big one being like the idea of coherency that comes up in uh, the Forge discussions of the big model quite a lot. That that kind of that idea, even even if that word doesn't get used, that idea is really central, I think, to the way 
a lot, if not most, indie game designers approach things right now, as well as uh, GNS, like I said. And just like general, like ideological level stuff. That Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think it does make sense. Though I have to say that for a design book, uh, I don't know. I at least in in previous uh, other fields, design work, like say architecture or art, when someone tells me tells me design and gives me the elements, they give me the elements in isolation. Like they will look at an existing work and then say this element, this element, this element. They point out the elements as made, and I don't know if that is something that is prevented by say publishing rules like you know like i don't think people would necessarily lend their games to others and say oh publish a part of it in my in your book mm. you know so i'm thinking that's probably what has happened here because you know like who owns the copyright to a 300 year old building right so architecture can get away with that but um, but huh. maybe the game doesn't because yeah. i think that's what's kind of missing here for me personally is that even as we go around into like looking at social contract exploration, uh, creative agenda, and the various techniques for establishing like setting system and so on, I don't actually see it in terms of please show me a text or a game which does this well and then how it did it. So there's no actual breaking down or isolation of the technique, which is why I kind of find this to be a very prescriptive document, but not a very descriptive one. It doesn't feel like a manual to establishing one's design practices. Yeah, it's, um, I, I compare it a lot to um, something one of my professors said about T.S. Eliot uh, when I was in college. We were sort of discussing, because I, I got really into prose about poetry for a while, specifically poets writing about poetics. And um, Eliot, as you may know, uh, had quite a career both as a critic and as a poet. Um, and <laughs> my teacher at one point said some, made some offhand comment about how po Eliot sort of legitimized this particular new criticism method of approaching uh, poetry criticism, and then also wrote poems within that framework or with that framework in mind. And so uh, she, she called it uh, cottage industry. And I think, um, I think the forge has some of that flavor, right? Where you've got this big elaborate theoretical framework and then a lot of people making things to sort of i don't know round picks where hold them to make an ungenerous read to round picks where hold games into that theoretical framework and it hasn't okay. it's not something that's really carried forward much into the present day in the same way okay so well, on that note are we ready us three are we ready to dive into the rest of this? Yeah. I'm yeah. a little bit like, uh-oh. Okay, so here <laughs> we go. Sweet. Here we go. So if we go back to this, uh, this diagram and the book, it starts off by talking about first social contract. And to quote on page 148 of the PDF, so rather than being a formal agreement among players, social contract was the sum and internal interactions of how the members of the role-playing group interact as human beings. In his blog post, Ben Lehman put it more simply, saying the only consideration of Forge Theory is the real people participating in the play of a role-playing game. We are going to talk about nothing that isn't the players of the game. 
um, dot, 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 dot. And so basically it sounds like, okay, so the first thing we need to do is we need to talk about how we socialize in games. Which I, yeah, I it, love that quote. I have that in my, in my notes somewhere. I have that quote and I love it because it's so obviously and demonstrably not true. <laughs> like it is so obviously a lie that's like trying to narrativize this large abstract theory project into a really grounded, like, and it's just not the case. Um, oh. So I, I'm like fascinated by it. Yeah. Okay. I, so what, what I, would I, you say is the falsity of the claim you two? Oh, I was going to jump on a kind of parallel thing. It's like, yeah, I think that's what's interesting is that like the, overall kind of like larger theoretical language was developed at first being charitable and kind because i'm charitable and kind um responding to actual play that happened involving the people that tried to develop theory before it became a game of imagining games and social dysfunction and then diagnosing problems and reading them into the rules like i think which I think is kind of the demonstration of the lie. Like, there, let me ta-da that. Um, but also is kind of why the language didn't catch on as much, because I don't think people reached for a term and had the, the word they were, like, looking for, like, right there in a blog post. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It's, um, to me, it's very, like, the, the Forge, if we could, like, if I were to narrativize the Forge working into theory, right, it's this idea that, okay, some games produce what we're calling dysfunctional play, right, where people, and we can sort of figure out why that happens. And it's because some people at the table want different things than other people, maybe. And then the goal of Forge design in response to that becomes this huge, broad attempt to systematize things, which I'm using the word system here to mean not human, to systematize things such that humans are no longer a consideration, right? Like they can't fuck it up again. Um, and that seems exactly the opposite of we're only going to talk about people. You know what I mean? Like it, it's about removing people in some way. For me, it, it just tries to like, um, how do I put this? Because it, it just, for, for one thing, I find that they're, definition of a dysfunction of play to be quite trite mm. uh, one page 149 uh, in, in general problems of dysfunctions of play showed up at the social contract level they meant that someone was not having fun playing the game and for me it's more like you know that's an extremely subjective thing not to mention that I, one one person's idea of fun can also necessarily not be another person's idea of fun so I'm, I, I would be like it's like, I look at the Forge, I look at the previous chapters of how, you know, the Forge did not really, in my opinion, deal well with issues of people of color. And so I'm kind of like, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> like when you get down to it, these things are not, um, you know, like if you can systematize ways of how people had fun, guaranteeably, I think you'd be extremely like, you'd be dreaming, mm. you know? And so yeah, at it, the very least it's silly, right? Yeah, it is. It's like I can understand toolkits. I could understand oh, if this happens or this kind of behavior happens, then 
X, Y, Z, fine, but I don't think that's necessarily something that is hedged in by game rules. I think that's hedged in by personality well, and how I you think, deal with each other as people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why on a way to be charitable, I kind of forgot to mention earlier, is that, like, of the diagram, the thing that kind of stuck around is things like lines and veils, because, like... I think their demonstrable function of facilitating a sort of negotiation about expectations kind of intuitively works in the absence of actually knowing another person. If you're playing with strangers, it's kind of helpful to lay some ground rules about something that makes you uncomfortable. But like, that's also a very just human psychology consideration more than game design consideration because like basically any game can implement that process it's not like it is part of a rule set unless the rules decide to explicitly say that you have to do it yeah and i think there's something to be said this is jumping forward a little bit but i think there's something to be said about how about how the sort of right the because the outermost box is the social contract and the innermost box, if we ignore ephemera for a moment, the, the innermost box is techniques. And the, the, there's this middle ground of shared imagined space that like bridges them or it's supposed to bridge them somehow. And maybe a generous reading would be like, that's the place where it breaks down that actually the, the, the bridge between techniques and social contract is not there the way the forge seems to think it is. Um, but that the techniques in sort of a naive way, some of them do work. And there's some of this language that you do still see, right? You still see lines and veils. Um, I still occasionally see someone talk about fortune in the middle versus fortune in the end. Like those are, those are things or task versus conflict. Like those are things that have stuck around and have been useful, but I'm not sure they're interacting with the social contract element of the big model, the way the forge broadly wants to believe that they are. Yeah. This um, is going to be one of those chapters, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think this is why the book's interesting, right? Like, going to try to be upbeat because I'm smoking a lot of marijuana. If only we could get a sponsor of one, it would make this much easier. But, um, you know, the the kind of like... Can we just implicit... make it clear right now that Fiona lives in a state where such a te- where that's legal? Let's just make that clear right yes. now. Yes, uh, 100%. Fiona lives in a if you do not legal. live in a state where it is... <clears throat> where, if you live in a state where it is illegal to consume marijuana, you shouldn't do it because the government has decided about what you should put in your body and the government knows better than you. Um, I realized that... that is a sarcasm that can actually have some really bad cash outs. So let me, I think there's good medical research about why you should do this. But um, that said, you know, I, I, I think like the, the kind of claim that really pulls all of this together is where there's just this thing of like piecemeal alterations in the rules being used by a particular group in the hopes of achieving a particular feel for the game was highly unlikely to succeed in the absence of a coherent shared vision of what the game was about, right? What's interesting is that like, that is what bridges these things. The, the sort of like minutia of you agree to play a game with people, you agree to kind of the parameters of what the game is. You show up and you try things and things work or don't work and people drop in or out and you kind of, fine-tune adjust to what becomes meaningful. 
which is the the unfun answer that doesn't make any sort of cool theory of like ultimately what makes a game meaningful is time that that's the secret yeah like on some level we could almost read this this diagram as being inside out where actually perhaps a, a more productive way of framing this could be that we have all of these techniques floating around this core of a social contract, right? And that everything flows out and up from that social contract. And that might be a more interesting thing in that we have these techniques that can let us, uh, that can give us pathways for shaping the social contract even. Like we can sort of do that. Things like lines and veils are an example of that. But that the social contract forms some sort of foundation. Whereas I think there's there's an implied um, like even in, in the diagram as presented, the only thing actually listed in the social contract box itself is a bunch of problems, <laughs> right? It's it's dysfunctional play and different kinds of dysfunctional play. And I think that's a really telling sort of attitude that the social contract is where problems happen and then we use game to fix. And I think it's probably at the very least some of both, but m- in my estimation, from my experience as a person who plays and creates games, it's typically the other way around, right? The games games, and like the fact of games and, and sitting at a table and attempting to game with person and attempting to interact with some kind of text together is, is a source of potential friction and it's the social contract that gets us through it. Does that jive with with? I all? mean, at the end of the day, this is just about like... Are you friends or not? That's really my question. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> you know, like, are I'm you friends or not? I'm trying to speak Ford's language, but yeah. Are you friends or not? Maybe it's because this was done in convention settings where you'd end up playing with total strangers. Maybe that's why there was this a consideration. I don't know. Mm. But uh, in my in my mind, I'm just kind of like, but are you friends or not? Like, seriously, are you willing to adjust for your friends or not? That's it. That's it. That's, you know, I'm kind of like, strict strict adherence to the rules of and the structure of a game will not necessarily enforce a social agenda yeah social and I think contract. at the risk of like further stalling us moving forward in this discussion i think there's there's like some really negative um outcomes that have moved forward from this base assumption right that games because because what we're talking about here is a system where games are positioned as a thing that fixes players Right, so we have this social contract that's full of all of these problems and dysfunctional play, and the game steps in and fixes it and says, "Here are, here, here's how you do it correctly, friends." And we, I feel like there's still a lot of that sort of attitude that gets uncritically uh, re- repeated, and not only in larger discourse, but in like the way games get written and presented. So you you end up with a lot of really you end up with some good things you end up with uh, a culture of safety tools that i think are is really productive um but you also end up with these systems that like are very (laughs) they don't leave a lot of space for players to live if you get me yeah i mean i think that's in some ways what i think of as like the interesting and mixed legacy of the forge is i think that like in a lot of ways it sought to figure out a way to combine something like Emily Post and Robert's Rules for Orders plus game equals experience, ignoring like, as someone that can follow Robert's Rules for Order, you can use that hostily. 
like, as long as you know the rules well enough, mm -hmm. like, you can be very hostile by using procedure to censure another speaker or to remove them from the speaking list or to, you know, do things that work to slowly move them out of the conversation until they're no longer able to communicate, right? Like, that's not maybe the intention of the rule, but, like, it is a thing you can do, even if it's meant as a mechanism to act against bad faith. And Emily Post, it's quite easy to be rude to people following Emily Post because traditional etiquette is the norms of rich people, right? Like, and that's the odd thing is that, like, I I don't know if games are therapy because like a therapist has to do a lot of work to be a therapist and to be qualified to do the things that therapy is supposed to do for you. And I don't know if games are an acceptable substitute for and therapy. And is also like highly situated in... It's just, I think a lot of this probably comes from trying... To, it's, the, it's the act of theory, which is theory is normally uh, useful if it works in, in a large, uh, you know, very large uh, set of situations, it's just that in trying to create the language that espouses a theory, it can become so general as to almost feel useless. And it's hard to like really explain its contextual applications. So I think that's the problem with this text, which is that I think it's representing the theory in a way, personally, which doesn't really show how this should work in specific contexts. And that's where I'm just kind of like, eh, you know, like, okay, fine, here's the jargon, but how it's actually applied, I don't know what that looks like. It, it lacks that descriptive ability to make this theory or this text feel and relevant be, and alive to me. To be a little, maybe slightly generous um, to this in a way that I haven't been thus far, I think there's there's a few spots, and this is this is relevant to where we're currently at in the text, right? So we're, we're in social contract. I think there's a few spots where you can sort of start to see the situatedness of this particular discussion in its time period and in the sort of larger games zeitgeist of the moment. Um, one one that I point to a lot is this impossible thing before breakfast idea, which is the name that the Forge gave to the belief that players the players control their characters and the GM controls very importantly, the plot, right? And that's a, that's a setup that's very particular, at least in my mind to quote unquote trad play. Um, I associate it very heavily with, well, with three E um, with Watsy D and D I'm sure two E had plenty of that, like sort of the late stage decadence of TSR D and D probably had some of that, but this, this idea that there's a plot, and that the GM controls the plot and the players act inside of that. Um, oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's... I completely agree that, that, that that's bullshit, right? Um, <laughs> but the, the, and calling it the impossible thing before breakfast is like, okay, that's cute. Um, so I, I think that's interesting because that's a problem that they're dealing with very explicitly that I don't know. I, I feel like maybe, maybe I'm a simpleton, but it seems like, like a don't do that is kind of the answer. <laughs> it's like a dock it hurts when, my, when I raise my arm. <laughs> well... It's just um, this idea that sort of the system needs to step in and fix that problem is sort of where, I, where it loses me. But I also think that's not a, that's the kind of problem that at least me as a person, I don't deal with a lot because I don't play 5e. I don't interact with people who play mm -hmm. 5e. And there are a lot of people who do. And I see them on Twitter and I'm really baffled. I think but, social yeah. contracts been played out, friends. And do you want to go into exploration? Yeah, let's do it. 
Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Oh my God. <laughs> this, this text. Okay. So uh, according to the book, uh, the central exploration of role playing is diegetic exploration, mimicry, and Kawa's sense of the temporary acceptance, if not of an illusion, then at least of a closed, conventional, and in certain respects, imaginary universe. And said universe includes a subworld or subcreation of the setting, the characters, or less fictional personae adopted by the uh, by the players, and the situation of in-game circumstances in which those characters find themselves as a result of their connection to the setting to which they must respond. And then you have color, another element, which refers to fictional tropes, motifs, or other stylistic elements associated with a particular sort of fiction the game is associated with. So basically, I look at exploration as doing things in the game. Yeah. It's, it seems like they're trying to separate out the diegetic stuff in a way. You know what I mean? Like this is, well, no, they include system, don't they? Well, mm-hmm. I take that back. They use the Lumpley principle. Um, but it does seem to be sort of diegetic leaning. Remind me what the Lumpley principle is. Oh, let me um, pull it up so I quote it correctly because that's the Baker's. Um, uh, so here, the er- third paragraph, yeah. page 151. Yeah. The yeah, earliest yeah. formulation of this might be a thread from August 2001 where Vincent Baker says, to quote, the point of every game mechanic is to create consensus among the players. Consens- consensus is the underlying mechanism of role-playing, right? If the players don't agree that something happens, it doesn't happen. And I'm just kind of like, okay, again, that makes sense. Um, I think that is all right. But does that necessarily work i'm kind of like um it's to create consensus among the players my question is consensus between who like does it have to be agreed upon by every player does it have to be agreed upon by the gm and the player uh exactly what is it for me that's just that's just more like um yeah like how exactly is that supposed to work yeah it's it's an interesting sort of labeling it exploration is interesting because it's, I don't know, there's there's like a deep impl- implication there that I feel like it's not being unpacked here. I mean, I might be the, like, sorry, I'm trying to, like, formulate a thought, but, like, I think that that and the concept of shared imaginary space feel true to me, or at least, like, things that maybe are influential, but they feel like things that, like, are kind of very awareness of game designs, because even the earliest games tried to create mechanics to simulate things to like create a reality that players found appealing and poking around to the setting was kind of the purpose of that yeah this tying it to consensus is really interesting i think because it's especially in terms of putting the word system here under exploration because what you what you sort of miss out on is or not miss out on but what it sort of elides is the very sort of straightforward ever you know the classic idea of what at least what like a resolution system is doing and that is providing some kind of um unknown some kind of unexpected result from time to time and maybe we can frame that as what the dice say we we all agree to right but that's obviously something they're pushing back on here um i don't know it's just a really i'm kind of hung up on it maybe a little more than i should be i I I think it's just more like Again, it's just trying to 
make the language for something that they're trying to do. I don't think it's necessarily bad. No. I just think it's just more of an attempt to explain what you're supposed to do in a game. Oh, uh, just being on topic for once, because I never am, but I'm always drifting off. It does transition nicely into the discussion of, um, now I lost my place, of course, um, of creative agendas, this, how, like, the experience of games is framed, right? Like, I, I think that, like, it's a metaphysical claim that, like, kind of pivots to a lot of the Forge ideas and, like, kind of is one of the ones that most people accept pretty readily. Yeah, like this this particular section of the diagram, this exploration shared imagined space section, is basically what I think of as just like that. That's playing the game, right? Is that fair? Yeah, this yeah. Is the, I think the stuff. This is the playing the game part. Absolutely. Or what? Like, what? 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 A, what a game normally does. Part yeah, like what, when we say we're going to play D anD D, this is what we all like. This is what we're talking about. That's that yeah. part. That's that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I guess the creative agenda then links to this in the sense that okay, so now that we decide, now that decided that okay, we like each other, (laughs) so let's agree to play a game, social contract, and we're going to play a game, right? They were all agreeing we're playing a game. We're not actually like going to kill each other. Social contract. Now uh, the game being X exploration. uh, Okay. We're going to be playing this game. We now enter. We now enter creative agenda, which is okay. So, how exactly are we going to do this? That's what it reads to me. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, okay, so all right, all right. I mean, it's it's phrased in quite a lot of like academic, you know, rootedness. Fine, fine, fine. I creative that. agenda feels like like there's we all get together to play a game, and we say, okay, we're all friends and we like each other, and we've got a social contract. And then there's like three horses, and we have yeah. to choose one to get on all of us. Yeah, <laughs> to ride into the game. And it's that's like sort of okay, which horse it's, we choose. It's, it's whose car are we riding to get to the game? <laughs> exactly. Place? Like you know, which, it's like who are we carpooling with? You know that that's what it feels like to me. So here, uh, going to page one hundred fifty-three, in graphic depictions of the model, an arrow labeled "Creative Agenda" would often be rooted in the social contract box, shaped down right down through exploration and and in techniques. So basically, describes the model and why it does that, right? Nonetheless, uh, the creative agenda is central to the big model, as Ralph Matza put it when they talked to him about it. The core of the model, really, the beating heart idea, is that people sit down at the table with different ideas, different expectations of what they want to get out of the game, what they think they're going to get out of the game, what subconsciously they don't even realize they want, but when the rubber hits the road is what makes or breaks it for them. You get a bunch of people with a bunch of conflicting ideas around the table, and the game's not going to work. If you spend some time to get people on the same page, then the game is going to sing. So in other words, without a sense of creative agenda, what seeks to understand why the people around the table are engaging in the act of exploration within their particular social setting, beyond the opaque rationale of fun, both frame analytic and process models of role-playing, arguably lose both descriptive and analytic power as they lead attention towards the game's processual structure and away from the sense of experiences afforded by phenomenological interrogation of why people play and what they get out of it the sort of thing an exploration of creative agenda can provide i think that last i find that i really find that that last paragraph unnecessarily complicates the par- the quote from ralph matza mm. and i'm like 100 percent. i'm like okay really like seriously okay so it sounds like you just need to understand why we're all playing and we need to re- you know, respect 
and maybe just like adjust expectations that people have about this game. I think that's it, right? Why is it unnecessarily complicated? Yeah, it's almost like, especially framing it against frame analysis and um, what's the other one? The process analysis. It, it almost seems like the thesis here, like the hidden thesis here is that the Forge creative model here knows in its heart of hearts that really it's just like everybody needs to talk to each other and like be on the same page but they need (laughs) they need this like complicated superstructure in order to compete with frame analysis and process analysis (laughs) just to like justify its existence what what i find problematic about this it doesn't tell you how to have those conversations Mm -hmm. it doesn't no. Is the game supposed to tell you how to have these conversations? Is Yes. It's like, again, it's almost like, oh, this is the nature of gaming. And I just kind of want to go, yeah, but there is no book you can make to understanding why you're friends, right? You actually have to do the work of making friends. <laughs> but I, I do think that that's sort of at least the attitude that's carried forward from the Forge. I can't speak to it directly because this is the kind of thing that I feel like I would need to have been there to really speak to it. But the lasting legacy of the Forge in my world is that the game is there in in most ways to make sure that even if you're not friends, everything goes fine. That's sort of the attitude, and it's very strange to see it. I don't know. It it seems like the weird propping up of some some strange game design technocracy. Yeah. You know? (laughs) It's yeah. like, we are the experts in games. And the games will be designed in such a way that everyone will play the game properly. Because the game is designed that way. And maybe that's not what they intended. Like, maybe that's not where their head was at. But that has been, at least in my estimation, like I said, the logical extension of it. I don't um, understand. Well, you know. Into the future. You know, anyway, from Creative Agenda, that's when we finally enter the whole notion of G and and S. So page 154 talks about gameism, the step on up slash challenge. Uh, It talks about narrativism, story now. And then it talks about simulationism, which is the right to dream. And I find it really funny, again, revealing what seemed to be the Forge's bias for narrativism is you have this tiny little fat paragraph for gamism. You have massive quotes for narrativism that they take up a page and a half. And then simulationism. <laughs> it's just like, okay, yeah. let the bias continue. So uh, gamism explain, is explained as to describe game as play, referring to the social assessment of personal strategy and guts among participants in the face of risk highlighting the skill and ability of the players involved. So the adversity faced by characters within the fiction is called challenge and is understood to be the imaginative arena for step on up play. So I'm guessing how well you're able to make your scores reflect and then you will then build a character to do this to meet X challenge, I suppose. Yeah, I think this um, is yeah. focusing on the um, the player skill angle, this particular paragraph. Yeah, is. like how well you can make a build for a X system, yeah, for combat. Exactly, you know? yeah. Like that's a good example, perhaps, of gameism is like yeah, the people who are really into Pathfinder and they make those weirdo combo builds yeah. that just or, like 
do 100d6 damage every round you know yeah or people into exalted who will say like this charm martial arts tree will lead me to maximum like successes Mm -hmm. okay so that's one then you have narrativism story now narrativist play is that play that addresses premise which ron edwards define as a establishing the fictional presence of an engaging issue or problematic feature of human existence in the game b developing the issue or feature of a a source of continued conflict and c resolving the issue through the in-game actions of the players as protagonists and then we have a long ron edwards quote which to me is just pretty much like um you know like worshipfulness and Mahar, try to be kind. Try to be kind. I'm trying to be kind here. I really am. I don't know why I feel so challenged. It's it's just because I'm just kind of like, it's so... Don't use the word you were going to say. Okay, it's like, it's just so... I feel like I'm in grad school again, and I'm, I feel like I'm listening to someone who decided to read the next book before everyone else just to show how much they knew. There, that's where I'm at. <laughs> it's a very specific feeling. It's like, look how ahead I am. There's, there's some interesting little tidbits in here. One is at the end of that block quote there on page 154. Ron asserts the story now, quote, has a great deal in common with Step On Up, gameism, um, particularly the social expectation to contribute, uh, which is, I, I wouldn't have made that connection. Um, but it's true that, like, in, in Step On Up, the idea is, in gameism, the idea is that everyone is not necessarily competing, but at least, like, participating in a cooperative competition against some kind of challenge. And in narrativism, the idea is that everyone is contributing to a story and that's like capital s story that does not exist in the impossible thing before breakfast way and the quote goes on but in this case the real people's attention is directed toward one another's insights toward the issue rather than toward strategy and guts and that's that's something i find really interesting that like this framing that play narrativist play is about exploring and this is ron says this over and over again narrativist play is about exploring premise and i'm not sure did we talk about premise last time did, did i shout about premise last time <coughs> i think you so, might have but... not because you we were I, I very beleaguered in the last one <laughs> go for it just shout about but, like, premise premise his, his whole thing with premise is his whole thing with premise is really strange to me it's 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 coming out of I, you know what i i did shout about it last time because we talked about his obsession with um, theater theory and how it doesn't quite apply but yeah, so harkening back on that premise thing, so that's in there. But also right after that, and this is this I find really funny, this idea that narrative quote narrativism works by having one stand in a kind of alienation or distance from the character one plays in order to more strongly appreciate the moral weight of the decisions the character makes, and it's this it's this idea that like I control a character, I make the character do things, but I do it from this like detached position so that I can appreciate how brilliant it is that I have the character do the thing. That's really strange. And this is just like me as a player responding to this idea, but it's very, very strange to me. And it has a little bit of the flavor of what is it? The, the Sega principle, the, the the Paul Sega principle that, Oh, what is it? It's something like it's, it's boring to have the same person present the challenge and solve the challenge. Right. So it has some of that same sort of tension in it to me. Does that, does that like sit with y'all at all? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Okay. For me, it's just, for me, it's, it's, 
I think that's correct. Um, but here's the next part, which I just kind of like find funny. As a creative agenda, narrativism only works by having one stand in a kind of alienation or distance from the character one plays in order to make more strongly, uh, to, in order to more strongly appreciate rather the moral weight of the decisions the character makes. It is equivalent to the distinction that the Russian literary theorist Mikhail Bakhtin makes between what might be called unselfconscious and reflexive play. And then I, I just, okay, so I had to stop my eyes from rolling here. <laughs> because like I see the tension right now between suddenly uh, drama theory and literary theory because like as a creative agenda narrativism works by having one stand in a kind of alienation or distance from the character in or one place in order to make to appreciate moral whatever and I'm kind of like yes that's true but on the other hand lots of theater particularly theater that um theater that is method for example which is also like russian literary theory when you go all full Chekhov, is when you're gonna go but you need to be so real you need to simulate reality so thoroughly that it becomes real and so much storytelling is done by accepting this role right so i'm kind of like uh first i think you have your your theories mixed up and secondly i'm like that's not necessarily how it works like uh you can create story and appreciate narrative while being completely entrenched in what the in the role that is that you're making, uh, and you might even forget in the heat of the moment that you're in that role, and later on you can appreciate what you just created. So I'm just kind of like, huh, what is this? What is this? Well, what is this? <laughs> what is this like? You know, yeah, like there's, there's not enough. It's assertive That's here the thing. in this book. There's not enough unpacking of the sort of the dual purpose that a player or the the dual role that a player plays both as like performer and audience to make yeah. that claim you know what i mean like you haven't earned that claim i mean we it's not warranted yet i get why the claim would be made but until the claim is proven true i am not inclined to believe it right yeah exactly. so i'm just i'm like come on unpack the work sorry sorry i have students I have lots of students. I work as a teacher. And when a student just gives me a quote to like equip like and just say and I'm like unpack the quote. Otherwise to me that's just plagiarism. Explain it. Explain it. Don't be glib and just be like, "Oh, by the way, this quote explains it all." No. No, explain it. <laughs> Tell me why I care. Why should I care? Your sure. argument is incomplete. This isn't an argument. <laughs> this is okay, Mahar. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Like I'm moving back. I'm moving back. Well, no. I mean, I think that's the the other thing is that like I don't know the the thing I find interesting is that like theories about acting and performing, even ones of popular education, seem more relevant to this than. Bakhtin's analysis of like stagecraft, right? Because like RPGs aren't theater in many ways, except for upon reflection. And also, like, no one's a passive spectator in a game unless your friend is there in like the room watching everyone. And even then, they're kind of affecting everyone, you know, like it feels like going for like 
a book that has a lot of high regard in like literary circles, right? Like Rabelais in his world is one of those books that, you know, great books programs make you read because it it's a really good book. I, I can't lie. I don't know if it's a book that everyone should read. It's a good theory book about something, but like it doesn't feel like the right theory. And that's what kind of frustrates me with this sometimes. Um, okay. Let's so simulationism, move on. simulationism, right? So it uh, its priorities are focused on exploration in general. Uh, note exploration, the capital E, and usually specifically on the exploration of one of the key components of the SIS system setting, character, situation, or color. It's called the right to dream because it seeks a space for ramifying the consequences or implications for a particular imaginary universe. Okay, so that makes sense to me in that sense, though. When I get down, when I think about it, I'm actually like, oh, I'm actually quite simulationist in that regard, following that um, description. Yeah. Uh, in, in here, the effect is to divide simulationism as a creative agenda into at least five subcategories, increasing the number of recognized creative agenda in the big model from three to seven, though this never seemed to have been said very loudly. Um, the big model also acknowledged the possibility of hybrid forms of creative agenda, although Ron was skeptical that a functional hybrid could encompass all three major types of creative agenda. Usually in such pairs, one creative agenda type was dominant and the other supportive. Uh, Forge poster Jonathan uh, Buddha Davis recalled a game called uh, Tbilisi by Steve Dempsey that was supposed to permit play in all three roles, providing three ways game as narrativist or simulationist you could play in each scene. It started with everyone standing up and pointing and yelling to the future or to Belize, Buddha told me, adding, it is a lot of fun to play, but it didn't really work. Um, okay, my, here is where my, like, academic hat starts raising its eyebrows. Because the, the criticism of the big model is done with a kind of ethos that I find, like, problematic. It's like, oh, it doesn't really work because a Forge poster said it didn't. <laughs> yeah. I'm and like, I'll, I'll point again to like that this this change and this is this is uh, like makes it crystal clear what I'm talking about. The change from the old trifold model that existed on Usenet where this like game is simulation is narrativist trichotomy was used to describe players and the way players might approach things and that they it was very clear that they would change from moment to moment and all of these you know it was just like possible ways um on a momentary basis of interacting with the game and now this is something very clearly that a text does and that shift is super remarkable to me and completely unremarked on in this book yep right yep completely agree i i'm just it's just look, I w it's the risk of codification. Mm -hmm. Like as lo when ideas are in flux and not written down yet, the ideas can still mutate because the reference points change. And on one hand, that's bad because you're always changing the goalpost. On one hand, that's good because you have the freedom to like lock the idea in in something I would consider to be slightly more democratic because you're still engaging in that discussion but when you start codifying things and saying this is the decided thing that we're you know locking in words and stone so to speak 
This is the limit of our world. We're not that, we're not exactly. allowed to imagine anything outside of this. Exactly right. It's yeah. almost like you've you've you, you know it's like you're going to quote a chapter in verse, and <laughs> I just find it really really funny. Like I don't know who you were, but until you explain to me who Mister Jonathan Buddha Davis is, and I don't think this person is a bad person, but who is Jonathan Davis such that? their um, encounter with a particular game in mixing these three pathways for play is meant to be taken seriously. Like what, like, was there an actual survey done? What is your, what is your, what is your, like, you know, how did you find your participants in said survey? Did you have a market study? Did you have an ethnography? Did you have anything other than Jonathan Davis telling me he didn't, he had fun, but it didn't really work. I mean, and just like on a, as a side note, <sighs> it is so petty the way they frame this Tbilisi game, and it's obviously trying to support Ron's claim that you can't do all three. And they introduce this like straw man game of Tbilisi and immediately make it seem ridiculous, right? Yeah. With this, everybody stands up and yells a nonsense word. And it was a lot of fun, but it doesn't really work. And it's like, oh, I'm just supposed to think it's ridiculous. Yeah. You, you know what also, <laughs> actually, can we just also talk about the language here? The big model also acknowledged the possibility of hybrid forms of creative agenda, although Ron was skeptical. Wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know. Is the, Ron has Ron the model. <laughs> Suddenly, my big buddy Ron. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa. This is a textbook, and now I'll be all like, it's almost like listening, like, this is how ridiculous this is to me. It's almost like someone writing a history about, say, World War II. And rather than saying, you know, but Churchill felt, it's like my pal Winston. <laughs> you know, that, that's, I just, this is a textbook. There's a lack of yeah. distance <gasps> that sometimes is a little hard on I don't I'm going to try to be kind of, yeah, probably like a lot of people around the forge just don't have the interest of being interviewed by an academic, right? Like being interviewed by an academic is kind of exhausting, but like, yeah, probably where was the broader net cast or like, where was the research into what like newer generations of things did or what people have done since the forge? Well, maybe that's why people are forgetting the forge. Mahar, stop. Stop. But are people forgetting so the I think forge? That puts us I... techniques. Yes, techniques. He's <laughs> <laughs> just so now we're, we're a box techniques. down. We're 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 get, we're just get, we're just barreling forward. This is a very gamest <laughs> way. Chapter is hurting me. We're playing this in a gamest way now. It's like <laughs> just step right it's up. Like, techniques. It's like, it's like you all have. You all are recipients of higher learning. Use player skill to get through this obstacle. <laughs> uh, the techniques exist inside of exploration. It's its own box. It's like a really, it's got the most words in it. I think of any of the boxes on, on the diagram. Yeah, it does. Um, and it's split up into, and I think the reason is it's a list of actual, and God bless them, actual techniques like no joke this is stuff you can do and they're divided into uh, sort of subheadings of types of techniques so i guess the first one 
Well, Same. in general, it says techniques were specific game mechanical devices or gameplay procedures that designers could incorporate into their games or GMs and players could use in their campaigns to shape the experience of play. Okay, so that's where we're starting. And the first bit is what? Techniques for setting? What do we got? Yeah. It's, okay, so under techniques for setting, you have the story it's, map. It's GM prep. It's just GM prep. It's 100% GM prep. Yeah. Locales. Well, you know, like, you know, all participants. So in the same theory, like, uh, like let's try to make this theory real. Feather and Bone, right? Creates, you create, yeah. It's a map-making game. Yeah. So I yeah. think, you know, that's a technique for setting. Uh, which, see, to credit to credit the Forge, maybe that game saw, te- <laughs> saw fun in establishing techniques and gamified a technique for the sake of a larger game. So thank you, Forge, trying to be kind, <laughs> with that, right? So there. Yeah, so like the headings are, are techniques for setting, oh. techniques for system, which is where you get like very, very notably, you get fortune in the middle versus at the end and you get task and conflict and stakes, which stakes is something that I still only vaguely understand. I understand it in other contexts. Uh, but those are all like, things that, like, yeah, well, stakes specifically in the like Ron Edwards, like troll babe way is a very, it's, there's, it's, there's shit in it. But it's one of those things where, um, like all of those, those three things, those three resolution, because those are all under resolution, um, are things that I've seen other games do since. Um, well, especially you know, I mean, the, the divide between task and conflict. Well, you know, this and I I E E. You know, notably, technique for system gets a lot of unpacking, mm. and you can tell because, again, you can tell where the author had it ideologically sat with regards to this, to this idea. Uh, the big one being that this required careful consideration of matters of system, which fundamentally served to assign credibility, as quoted to Emily Boss, to different players at different times. And a fundamental criterion for design was coherence in italics. How do the game mechanics and procedures foster a particular experience of play, and was that experience of play what the designer wanted to foster? To the extent that the, game design was in- to the game's design was incoherent, a given play group could drift in italics, it via house rules and ad hoc procedures to make it aligned with the expectations and priorities, but the idea, common in gaming circles, and often referred to as Rule Zero or the Golden Rule, that a rule a group somehow didn't like could safely be ignored without affecting the designer's intent was treated skeptically. This led to a concern for avoiding drift in play and relying on the rules as written, raw, in order to honor the designer's intent, but this may have been the source of Prenantator's complaint that the 4Gs didn't understand his game Mortal Coil while traditional gamers got it just fine. So I'm just, it just goes on to like talk about how drift is ultimately unproductive. It talks about how resolution and execution, they all need to be understood. It talked about all I of love this. Things. I love this implication that the, that the <laughs> prevailing, and maybe this was true at the time, but the, the prevailing like attitude toward house ruling was that you could house rule and use ad hoc procedures or whatever, um, and that it wouldn't quote affect the designer's intent. And it's like, yo, I don't think I don't think anybody was worried about the designer's intent. I, I I'm not. <laughs> you yeah, know? Like, like I don't really care. I'm like, I mean, come on, like 
<laughs> I mean, like, for someone who's so happy with formalism and Russian formalism, the author's dead. <laughs> I mean, again, it's like th- there is this, like, cherry picking of what particular theory works at a particular time. But so, drift like, is one of those words we still see, right? We still see that. A lot of PBTA games will have a whole chapter on how to drift the game. I, I think Monster Hearts uses that word. It accepts I know Apocalypse it, World does. It accepts it. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, at the end of the day, I'm just kind of like, dudes, what are you... I mean, this is basically, like, designer ego. Oh, they don't play the game the way I designed it. I'm just kind of like, yeah, so... (laughs) (laughs) Boo-hoo. Yeah, Yeah, but then that that feeds... I feel like you have to have that when it's structured such, going back to sort of what we talked about at the top of this, where the game is there to fix problems. You know what I mean? Like that's uh, with inside of that base assumption that players are bad at playing and that games have to come in and fix it. Yeah, it makes perfect sense that you would resist any kind of attempt for players to mess with your sacrosanct rules. Right. So well, I, I think it's a package deal. It's you also, spare me. You go. You go. Because it's, you know, I think focused on making systems that produce narratives and everything else is set dressing that exists to justify that system and narrative are incredibly important and most other things aren't and here's my galaxy brain take for the episode because i'm very tired actually gms theory is a phenomenology of being ron edwards and therefore, no one can actually understand it than <laughs> by being Ron Edwards. And this book is just Thomas Nagel's How to Be a Bat, where I'm just trying to imagine being Ron Edwards. And now I just want to, like, find a way to be like, hey, can we have Ron Edwards here to just, like, explain what playing D&D was like for him? Just, like, narrate his first game of D&D he played to us. That was so beautifully, unintentionally cutting. I respect you. I love you. (laughs) I'm glad you are my friend. God bless. God bless. God bless. Yeah, here's the quote in the book that says that is, when laid out in its entirety, the big model thus reveals itself to be a not unreasonable perspective on the structures of interaction within which TRPG activity takes place, accompanied by some potentially useful technical approaches for facilitating play. Its major theoretical contribution to the scholarship of role-playing is to direct attention to the phenomenological motivation for playing at all. And the answer is yes, because it's Amir. Who's, who's motivation? Ron Edwards. <laughs> yes. He's Amir Ron Edwards. We achieved dialectical synthesis. Oh. It was Ron Edwards who gave us the forge. And the purpose of this is to explain exactly why this worked 100%. Uh, so, I mean, I th- we could go through all of this, all of these specific things. I don't think it's going to yield very much I mean, um, at this no, point. No, no. We've I talked mean, about it so, like, we've covered it pretty thoroughly, like how techniques interact with the rest of the whole thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I think ephemera, which, well, if we could yeah. talk very briefly on that, seeing as the moment-to-moment or even sentence-to-sentence occurrences, it's basically like... It just sounds like the different ways in which people would speak with each other and would like create meaningfulness. Yeah. 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 You know. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like 
it's difficult for me to really separate out because if you if you recall we we i don't think we touched on this when we went through it but the exploration part you see it's bracketed and labeled transcript and it's sort of posited as the stuff that happens in like in the game when you play it and that also seems to be in some way what ephemera is doing here but it's got a more like woo woo kind of attitude about it I, you know, I can't really the way I see it, it is ephemera is basically just oh friendship yeah it's it's actually I mean they try to define it here quote an account in other words not of the fiction of the shared imagine the shared imagined space that is the transcript but instead of the play that produced that fiction and it, and I'm just not sure what uh, distinction they're trying to draw there I mean look. Paul actually puts it very bluntly in page one sixty four. Like Paul Segal puts it in puts it puts it pretty pretty bluntly. Anybody who says that they had a good experience with the forage, he told me, (laughs) they'd have to be sociopathic to say that it was the theory fights and decade long status games that was the profound experience they had. Yeah, that about. So, I mean, like, (laughs) I like the follow up. "Hmm, Why don't you just say? You were friends. I mean, the follow-up follow of Fiona. certainly trying to grapple with some of the intricacies of the big model was a source of frustration for many people, which, by the way, I feel oh, extremely seen, seen by that sentence. Like, I feel seen and heard. I feel that like W.J. White reached out of the text the and just said, yes, this is your experience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying you know, to be kind. At, at the end of the day, I'm just kind of like, I'm just trying to say like, just call ephemera what it is. Being human. Human interaction. Feelings. Relationships. But it just sounds so patriarchal, to me anyway, to not be able to mention any of these things. Oh, oh, uh, what do we have to call it? Uh, um, feelings. No, uh, uh, ephemera. Ephemera, uh, comfortable now with the soft, squicky things. That's what it is to me. <laughs> so I the swear. conclusion sort of doubles down on the stuff that we pointed at earlier as being largely well, unearned. Look, this chapter offers a rationalized, yes, I would say you rationalized a lot, yeah. reconstruction <laughs> mm-hmm, of the forest's big model, assessing it as compatible with other frame theoretic approaches to understanding role play. You know what? There is no lie in that sentence. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll go with it. Sure. You know, I'll go with it. It sees the concept of creative agenda as an important theoretical innovation that in underscoring the collective purpose for engaging in TRPG play provides a point of purchase towards a phenological account of player experience. That's yes, that's it. true. If yeah. you if you substitute the word of player with Ron Edwards, <laughs> Mahar, trying to... I, I'm sorry, However, I that floodgate. That for many participants, uh, you know what I think I have, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I I like your galaxy brain. I I feel like suddenly the last hour has purpose. Okay, so. <laughs> However, it notes that for many participants at the Forge, particularly as time went on, big model talk was not essential to their engagement there. Mm, Mahar is nodding sagely. Although for others, it was at least initially revelatory and important to their design practice. 
Yeah, yeah I think we've god. tackled all the bits of that. Oh already. my god. <laughs> it's really laid out though. God on high. Okay, and low. Alright, so I think that's our episode. I think I think, you know, like we basically were operating I, my personal assessment of this episode is that I think we were operating on like, let's just get this done. But all of that, that work led to Fiona's fantastic <laughs> like almost I would say climactic uh, realization and let's not sell ourselves short I think we did engage with the text pretty well even if we were not entirely feeling it this this particular episode but we did thanks to Fiona position this book as a phenomenological study of Ron Edwards and I think that's an important breakthrough for the theoretical study of RPGs on par with frame, frame analytic approaches and phenomenological approaches. I, I mean, come on. Like, I mean, <laughs> Ron said. Ron was skeptical. <laughs> My good buddy Ron. You know, like, I swear. I swear. Again, I, I swear. But really, in what academic world would you accept that? I mean, really. 